Welcome to the Western Baul podcast series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice of the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is entitled, There is a Crack in Everything, That's How the Light Gets In, The Myth of Self-Perfection. The talk was given by Matthew Files in Prescott, Arizona, on July 11, 2020. Matthew is a longtime spiritual practitioner who has facilitated spiritual groups that support people to look deeper into their process, formulate their own questions, and become responsible for their choices. Matthew Files. The cracks are where the light gets in. That's a quote from one of Leonard Cohen's songs. Anthem. A couple of things he doesn't mention in the song. The cracks are also where the light gets out. And he also doesn't mention anything about gaping holes. He's only talking about the cracks. So, a number of years ago, this was back in the mid-90s, and my younger brother, he's about eight years younger than me, he was institutionalized, is what they call it, and uh, classified as chronic paranoid schizophrenic. He was in Maine, I was in Arizona. Went out to see him. He'd been there for about a week. And uh, I was talking with the ward psychologist, or the psychiatrist, actually. And so we're talking, and he, he knew a little bit our, about our family because uh, he talked to my dad, because my dad was actually the one that had my brother put in there. And we're talking, and he goes, you know, so he says, you're doing what you're doing, which was, you know, being on a spiritual path had been for some years. One of my sisters was an occupational therapist. The other sister was a social worker who's now a Buddhist nun living in India. And my other sister was a is a registered nurse. And then there's my brother. So he looks at me, he says, what are you all trying to heal? And I was taken a little bit back by that because it, I never really uh, considered that in that way that he was talking, basically in the way that it was so obvious that we were all trying to heal something. So this talk will also revolve around the idea of healing, what needs to be healed, what maybe doesn't need to be healed, and that whole consideration about like, what we know about ourselves in terms of healing or fixing. So I have this uh, phrase or a quote that I came up with, which refers directly to the theme of the talk, which is stay broken, which has a lot of implications to it. The biggest implication is that we're broken in many ways, and we often try to fix it or heal it or mend it, make it perfect. You know, we want to be perfect human beings. I'm going to make an assumption here for the people that are on this that everybody is on some sort of a spiritual path. I know for myself, getting on the spiritual path, which was considerable time ago, when I look at it now, I, I see it as a lot of the motivation was to fix what I thought was broken. And the pursuit of enlightenment was the cure, was the remedy. And that once enlightened, everything would be perfect. And life would just flow. That's the myth. That's, that's the spiritual version of the myth of perfection. That somehow enlightenment, or better yet, say it's not enlightenment. Say it's just spiritual practice. is going to somehow make us perfect. Make us whole again. Because somewhere in us, there is, there's a recognition that, uh, that we are broken. 
that something's not quite right, that life is really uncomfortable, and I, need, I really need to do something about it. Um, and life is really uncomfortable. And frankly, I don't see any way around that. That's just the way it is. Life is uncomfortable and it's messy. And the idea of having a fix for that is uh, part of the myth. So the whole notion of practice as a way to perfect oneself is a myth. So then why, you know, I mean, anybody who's on a spiritual path, some sort of spiritual path, with the ideas of practice, doing spiritual practices like meditation and breath work and things like that, how often do we, you know, pursue those things without any notion of a goal, without any notion of an end result. So staying broken, not fixing it. So there's a a practice of self-observation. You can find it in, in most paths. And yet the the style of self-observation that I'm familiar with is the style of strictly self-observing without doing anything about it, without trying to fix it, without trying to change it. Because, I mean, this is my interpretation, of course, but and I say that because, you know, who is it that thinks something needs to be fixed in the first place? We can talk about psychological cramps, you know, all of our neuroses, that kind of thing. Um, And there's just too many of them to deal with. We have so many. And and they they are symptoms. So, you know, if you look at it from, like, a healing perspective, you really just want to put Band-Aids on symptoms. That's what addressing, you know, psychological cramps is about. You know, most of it is is about putting Band-Aids on things. So we have a presentable front to the world, to our friends, to our family, to ourselves. It's about our image. We don't want to appear broken. We don't want to appear incomplete or fumbling or somehow not uh, together. I'll throw this in a couple of times. It's my, my highest recommendation to people. Stay broken. Don't attempt to fix it. Change whatever it is you happen to be seeing about yourself. Some of it is not real pleasant to look at. What I've learned from the pandemic and self, you know, isolating is that you really get to find out how antisocial you are when nothing changes. And your life is just as it's been all the time. So that's funny. What's not funny, talking about current events, what's not funny, but it's very real, uh, is racism. Big topic these days in the news. But it's very clear to me about the different, in, interiorly, how differently I relate to people of color. So what am I going to do with that? What can I possibly do with that? that information, try to, like, try to stamp it out? I don't think so. I don't think that's going to work. But I can see it, and I can observe it. I don't have to animate it. So, these these cracks, we're talking about the cracks here, the crack in the armor, the crack in the shell, cracks in you know, self-image, who I, who I take myself to be, who I think of myself as. And I don't know where it comes from, whether it's from 
I heard this story about, I don't know whether it's Navajo rug weavers or something like that. Somebody like that, or maybe it was Sufi rug weavers, about leaving imperfections in the product, in the rugs they were making. Because if they were, because they didn't want them to be too perfect. It would, I think the idea was that it would lock in part of their soul into the piece. So we don't want to make ourselves too perfect. We don't want to go about life looking too perfect, but that's really hard to do. But too, but perfect is a very interesting thing because it's all based on our, our conditioning. So yeah, I look the way I do. There was a little pamphlet that was put out many years ago written by my guru, Lee Laswick. And it was called The The Divine Path of Growing Old. Really phenomenal piece. And he had a, I wouldn't call him a student, but a, a deep admirer of his, who was a professional writer. Most of his writing was uh, softcore porn, but he was a good writer. He was really good. And he rewrote the, he was in love with this piece, really communicated to him something about aging. But given the way Lee wrote, it was kind of funky. You know, not all the sentences were complete. Some of the sentences were way too long. You know, that kind of thing. So he rewrote it, and he made it perfect. It read like a dream. It was really smooth and even. And it no longer communicated. It just didn't. It was, it, was a, it was a dead piece of beautiful writing. It was, it was a beautiful piece of writing. It was really good. But of course, that's just my opinion that it was dead. Maybe other people got fantastic value of it, out of it. But I thought it was just lifeless. But it was perfect. Uh, so to me, that's, that's an example of what happens to us as human beings, when we try to perfect ourselves, we no longer communicate. You know, Leonard Cohen's song is talking about the light getting in. In this case, it's the light getting out. If we make ourselves too perfect, the light can't get out. It's stuck. And there's, there's, there's no longer any heart-to-heart communication with another because our imperfections are no longer showing. On the other hand, that's the thing that Leonard Cohen doesn't mention is the gaping holes. You know, he's talking about the cracks, cracks in the veneer of who we take ourselves to be, our self-image. So my idea of perfection, personal idea, is going to be different than any of your guys' idea. Everybody has their own idea. There's no, there's no fixed thing for us. So everybody has their own idea and is living that out at the moment, attempting to present to the world the image of looking, let's call it, we call it looking good, like the idea of perfection. So really, you know, it highlights the whole thing. But how well do we really see ourselves? I assume some of you, many of you, I don't know, are familiar with Aenea types from Claudia Naranjo and others. But it's, you know, it's, it's using the Enneagram for typing, you know, personality typing. It's a way of looking at yourself, it's, you know. And so for years, I thought I was a five. I was convinced. Because one of the things that convinced me was because in the right in Claudio's book, he says, you know, if if a, if a five type five had a, a credo to live by, would be this quote from Herman S. Siddhartha, which is, "I can think, I can wait, and I can do without." And I had had that quote over my dresser for years before I ever came across any types. I was like, "Yeah, that is me." So we're talking about confirmation bias here. Everything I 
I read about type 5 confirmed this bias towards that. And then I hadn't looked at the neotypes, thought about it much for, I don't know, a dozen years or more. And I, I had this big, like, 100-page, 300-question thing that you fill out to determine your type. And I filled it out, and it came out as a 9. I'm like, well, I must have made a mistake. i got to go back and do it. So I did it again. It came out as a 9. What? I can't, can't be a nine. I'm a five. You know? So I went online. I found every available test I could find and did them all. And they all came out nines. And I'm like, how is this possible? And what I, the conclusion I came up with, whether it's actually accurate or not, uh, but I'll take it as accurate, was that doing that kind of thing, self, what's called self-examination, we're only going to appear to ourselves to the degree of honesty that we have about ourselves. And if we aren't self-honest about how we're looking at ourselves, we'll see ourselves very differently than if we were actually being honest with what we were seeing. And that's what I saw with the test, that when I was seeing myself as a five, I had, you know, it was like having this much of a view. I just wasn't self-honest. I didn't know myself well enough. And another thing I've seen about, uh, you know, self-image, about knowing myself, finding myself saying, you know, hearing about or seeing somebody do something or say something, and I'm incredulous. I'm like, how could they do that? How could they talk like that? How could they act that way? as if I didn't really know. But if I looked a little closer, not at them, at me, I would clearly know because I've got the same thing going on inside. And doesn't, you know, the same mechanism is there. It may not be active, but it's there. And then again, same thing. Seeing something like that what do I do with that? I think the best thing to do is nothing. Just leave it alone. And see it. See it clearly. See it for what it is. It's like in meditation. When you're sitting in meditation and thoughts come up, what we might call discursive thoughts, what do you do with that? Nothing. It's just a thought. That's all it is. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a thought. If it's true in meditation, it's true everywhere else. No, it's just a thought. Or it's just an activity. Something I did or something I said. Now, I'm not uh, trying, it might sound that way, uh, I'm not trying to excuse bad behavior. Because you can always apologize. You say something that's off the mark. And then when someone comes out of your mouth and you're like, oh, was that my outside voice? Oops, sorry about that. But that stuff, you know, that stuff is there and that stuff is real. So to do nothing about it, to me, is much harder, much harder. And I think much more fruitful in the long run than trying to do something about our stuff. All our stuff, all the things we think are wrong with us, all the things that we think should be changed about us, you know, all the things that everybody else complains about us, <laughs> you know. But there might be some hints in those in those comments. But still, what are you going to do? Are you going to run out and just like start changing everything about yourself? I don't know. I. For me, it's like, okay, I've been there, I've done that. It doesn't work very well. So there's, there's this idea of brokenness, already brokenness, that I think we all have to fess up to and, and leave it alone. You know, like that, there's that, what's that song? Uh, by Steve Winwood, uh, Can't Find My Way Home. Anybody know that song? He's got this line in there about, Come down off the mountain, 
we'll leave your body alone. Great little line. Lots of implications in there. Not just leaving your psychology alone, but leave your body alone too. Women think that men probably don't have that going on, that they're wrong about body perfection. Because uh, men have it too. Just to let you know. Just leave it alone. It is what it is. I'm not talking about being unhealthy. I'm not talking about eating a crap diet you know, just because you can. Because now I'm an adult and I can eat and drink and I don't have my parents or my guru to tell me what to do anymore. You know? So I can do whatever the hell I want. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the image, you know, what we think about ourselves. I'm too this, I'm too that, I'm not enough this, I'm not enough that. Just leave it alone. Most likely, I'm the only one that cares for myself, about me. <laughs> I don't mean about you. <laughs> so the cracks, another aspect of this spiritual seeking has anybody given up seeking? No longer seeking for anything? That's honest. That's good. Because if you said yes, I wouldn't believe you. But that whole that whole thing is, you know, what is seeking? If it's not money, food, or sex, it's God. Yeah? And it's all the same. It's all the same thing. It's all the same search. It's all coming from the same place motivated by the same sense of something's missing. I'm incomplete. So so what if you're incomplete? At some point, I, I may have been so focused on the yearning or the searching that I wouldn't see what I'm looking for if it showed up. Let's just use your analogy. You know, I'm so focused on the cracks that I'm constantly looking for more cracks. I'm constantly trying to figure out the cracks I've got, you know. But on some level, I've realized that I need to relax into the divinity that that pours through me, the, the divinity that I can connect with. And, you know, just for God's sake, now and then, stop the search. Personally, I don't think you can stop the search. That's like stopping ego or crushing ego. If you're searching, you're searching. That's what's going on. And if you consider searching as like a crack, one of the cracks, just don't try to fill it. And by filling it, you know, means like stopping the search. So the whole thing about Leaving, basically leaving everything alone. Like my, my approach to that is kind of um, what I call it. Faith, trust, uh, trust in the spiritual process that all that stuff, you know, the stuff that I concern myself with, the stuff that I worry about, the image that is not good enough, that'll all get taken care of. In the long run, or not, it's like there's there's some things that are my business, and some things that are not my business to do anything about. So I had this I had this dramatic insight one time. This was decades ago. How it came about is a great story, but I'm not going to talk about that. The insight was that. It was, it was like this tunnel opened up in my vision. And looking down the tunnel, it was the tunnel of my life. And I realized, I saw that I had never done anything in my whole life, ever, that didn't have my self-interest as the bottom line. Nothing. And it was horrifying. Because I had a really different self-image of myself. <laughs> really different. You know, my self-image was this like, really magnanimous person. There's that, there's the seeing of that, of like nothing I ever did, did like it was my own self-interest. 
I think it might have been that very thing that, that got me started at decades ago on this whole thing about like leaving everything alone. Because I realized that anything I did, tried to do about that was still in my own best interest. So it still was about me. If I tried to change that or fix that or be different about that, any, any action I took as an effort to counteract that, that dynamic, that thing that was going on in me, which is more of the same thing. Um, and yet, at the same time, over decades, I have seen that it's not, that what I saw is not as true as it used to be. So things have changed. But I have made very little effort to change anything, to be different in any way, directly. I mean, directly as, you know, seeing things, seeing these cracks and trying to, do, and trying to fix them. Now, then there's the whole topic of the gaping holes. You know, there's cracks and then there's gaping holes. And you now I think maybe the gaping holes might need some mud and straw and plaster you know, to fill those gaping holes. So let, let, let me define what I'm looking at as gaping holes. Uh, the gaping holes are the leaks of energy that keep us from actually practicing. The cracks don't. The cracks are not problems. The cracks need to be there. The cracks are what make us human. The gaping holes, you know, they need a little something. And then, just to throw a monkey wrench in the works, being the contrarian that I am, there's the whole non-dual perspective of everything's already perfect. We're already perfect as we are in terms of essence, but perhaps not in form. And the form is because of the gaping holes. So there are things, there are things that need work, but not the cracks. And the thing is, we need to be able to tell the difference between cracks and gaping holes. Things that need that kind of attention that one would give to a gaping hole and things that don't. And that can actually take some fair amount of uh, skill, I think, because it's so easy to get distracted in the little things, you know, the cracks. You get consumed by what's showing up through the cracks that you don't pay any attention to the gaps, the gaping holes. It's very strategic. So where does remorse come in? I think the thing about remorse is um, realize, I think remorse comes when you realize you can't do anything about it, about something that you've done or something that happened. It's like we have regret all the time and I think regret sort of has this back door built into it. Like, oh, if only I had done something differently. There's something more grounded and um, realistical about remorse, realistic about remorse so that you know you can't change what what was, uh, or in a sense you can't even change what is, but you might have the opportunity to at least be different in the future, and that's how remorse causes us to summon the the presence of being, maybe to be different for the future. I was thinking, you know, a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of this um, concept in Japanese aesthetics of wabi sabi, which is the the sort of the, um, the imperfection of material existence, you know, things that are a little bit crooked, a little bit worn, a little bit broken. And um, I was thinking in terms of aesthetics that it's actually the little screw-ups that makes thing, things perfect. And maybe that's the human condition. You know, it's if we all looked like Brad Pitt or, or whoever, you know, it would be, and it, the mind thinks that would be really wonderful 
you know, if we all had perfect beach bodies and we were hanging out at the beach, you know, so it, it can really be hell to get everything we want, you know, the image we have of perfection and having our desires fulfilled. If we're looking at remorse and let's say guilt, in my experience, remorse is other-centered and guilt is more self-centered because with guilt, it's more like, what can I do to make myself feel better because I have this, this does not feel good. Um, and there's still self-involvement. And I think remorse is so much about the, seeing the pain that we have caused someone that completely shifts us out of our self-centered, self-absorbed way of functioning. I think that remorse has the power, it has the force to really transform and shift something in our relationship with whatever it is that we're remorseful about, even if nothing changes on the outside. And then the other thing I was going to say about the cracks and the Navajo weavings and all of that and, and leaving imperfection, I think that we need that because as human beings, we tend to be so filled. We, send, we tend to be, as ego is running the show, we are self-inflated, we're self-promoting, um, we're puffed up, we're full of pride. And I think that if we stay in touch with those cracks and we let them be, as you're describing, then it keeps us in touch with a kind of... Um, I don't know if humility would be too strong of a word, but I would say vulnerability. And we need that vulnerability to stay in relationship with life as it is. Not life as we want it to be, or life as we want to control and manipulate it, but life as it is. I think we need, we need a certain um, texture, a certain kind of vulnerability. And I think staying in touch with those cracks and those flaws and like you're saying, having the self-honesty to actually see without doing anything, but just to deeply see in kind of like a raw way, visceral way, I think allows us to stay in relationship to life and to others with um, vulnerability. I think that people mistakenly think that when they feel guilty that they do feel remorse i don't i don't think distinctions are made between those two um things i mean it seems like there's some distinctions or nuance that is needed doing nothing is that like thinking i'm fine no matter what i do is okay people do horrific things in the world i mean they they're broken in some way they don't do anything about what, what other people see as cracks. Is that what you're meaning by like doing nothing? No. Because uh, I'm not talking to them. Specifically talking to, to people who have an interest in, in some what's called transformation. So we, can, we call it a spiritual path. So I think what you're referring to is like people who have no interest in spiritual life at all. I don't think people like that would relate to this the same way. So basically I'm, I'm talking about you know, being on the path and looking at ourselves on the path and learning to disidentify with who we take ourselves to be. You know, so that kind of that kind of language is not for everyone. You know, it's it's a whole different. It's, there's a split there in those worlds. Hmm. You know, what's the difference? I think the difference is that people who are on a spiritual path have some sense, and that's all it takes. It's just like a scent. It's like following a scent in the air of there's something more to this. Like this is not all there is to life. 
this this body, this mind, and everything that arises out of it, like and and the machine. Let's call the machine life or the conditioned life. Somewhere along the line, the reason along the path is because we got some whiff of there's more. There's more to the picture than this, and I would say for the most part that whiff goes undetected. If it's useless to try to fix anything, what's the point of spiritual practice? And also, part of this lyric is about that's how the light gets in. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Let's do spiritual practice first. First, I'll start with what I think spiritual practice is not. So, it's, it's not a remedy. Spiritual practice is not a remedy for anything, ever. It's just none of it. No, no aspect of spiritual practice is a remedy to fix something that we, that we perceive as wrong. At the same time, things do change when we're involved seriously in, in spiritual practice. Things change. We don't change things. I don't change things. But things change. So to me, Spiritual practice kind of sets up the, the matrix for things to change. Or not. We're not talking guarantees here. Why? <laughs> I don't know why. But that's pretty clear to me that there's no guarantees of any kind of results from spiritual practice. No. Things do happen. It guarantees. Like somebody was telling me about somebody they had met over in Europe who was, you know, wanted to become a part of this particular spiritual path. And they were asking him what he thought was great questions, which was like, well, what am I going to get out of it? What are the benefits for me? And I thought, like, it was like, well, only one way you're going to find out is to do it. Like you can't explain, you can't explain that ahead of time. And then, even then, you know, it's all about me. Like what benefit am I going to get out of this? That's a, definitely a question. Doing things for a payoff is just, that's a, it's, it's like it's a given in our psychology. It's the way we're wired, hardwired even, you know, is to make everything we do about me, to do it for me, you know. I benefit to charity for me so I can feel good or get my name on the list so people know that I'm doing good things, you know. Getting on the spiritual path is often like that. Too. Yeah, I do it for me. I want something out of this. I want enlightenment. Or I want salvation. Or you know, I want the glories of God. So doing things for ourselves, you know, we I don't think we can address that head on. That that underlying, that really deep-seated motivation to do things for with my self-interest in mind. Because it's just, it, it, it perpetuates the, the cycle, you know? It just keeps that, it keeps that loop going of me first. And that's, that's what, you know, all like, like faux humility is about. You know, false humility is like putting on the front of having, you know, being this humble person but it's just, it's just, you know, it's just, it's, it's the front, you know, it's the, it's the image. And it doesn't, it never addresses, you know, form, form never addresses the, the underlying you know, root cause. But changing form, you know, doesn't change the underlying root of our activity. Because the underlying root of our activity goes way back 
we're talking the proverbial illusion of separation. You want to get philosophical stuff about it. And you can't you can't address that. Like you can't touch that with uh, by addressing psychological currents because it's not in the psychological domain. It doesn't live there. The light, yes. Let the cracks letting the light in. Light can come from anywhere. It can come from cat. Jesus, that's a horrible thing to say. But it can. I can't believe I just said that. So, light can come from anywhere. But we're, if we're on top of it, we've got this thing going on, like the cracks are sealed, and I know what's going on in life. In my life, I'm on top of it. I'm managing it. Life is good. Life is working. Not that life shouldn't be good. Life should be good. But life being good doesn't actually mean that life is working. Life can be good. But, but if, we got, if, if we're like that, we've sealed the cracks and no, and no light's getting. So cracks, we could equate with vulnerability. Vulnerability to our surroundings, whatever our surroundings happen to be. Now, if, if we don't have cracks in our veneer, in our image of who we take ourselves to be, how we think about ourselves, basically nothing gets in. It's not like dark will get in. Even dark doesn't get in. Nothing gets in. But it's a wall, you know? It's an impenetrable wall. So that's that perfection. Whatever we think perfection is, that's the, that's the thing. Like we may not all agree on what perfection is. No problem, though. We don't need to. Because it's all based on each of our own particular idea of what perfection is. Our image of perfection is how we're relating to ourselves. There's no, no formula for that. No, no mold. It takes some self-honesty to see how we hold that perfection, that idea of perfection for ourselves. So no light get in, gets in. If the cracks are sealed up, no light gets in, no light gets out. So who knows? Maybe we think we have no light to let out. We might, we might have this self-image of ourselves as a broken person. We're just no good. It's not even the, the image of like, I'm great and I'm wonderful and I'm perfect. We could have the whole other end of the spectrum of self-image. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. So, you know, we can have the whole not worthy thing going on. And that's the self-image, but that's, that's perfect for us. As long as we can keep that going, we've perfected it. And no light gets in and no light gets out. So it's not about the image being, I'm all together, I'm wonderful. The self-image can be just the opposite. But the same process happens. So even, even if the image is broken and I'm imperfect and I'm kind of like useless and not worthy of anything, that's like we carry that around and that's a sealed unit. There's no cracks in that. So the cracks are in the way we're perceiving ourselves. I think of the phrase from, you know, both self-observation with Red Hawk and I think it's Gurdjieff as well, but part of not doing anything about it a part of, of not trying to change the faults we see has to do also with at some point seeing the horror of the situation as the term is, you know, what you're saying in terms of not taking action and stay broken is being said to a group of spiritual students who are, who are on a path to some degree that at some point we do, I don't, I don't want to take pride in all my cracks and I certainly understand the difference between the big holes and the cracks, but can you address that a little bit? Leaving the horror of the situation alone, but not forgetting about it. It stays right here all the time. Change will happen. And yet you know, I'm not doing it. It's very tricky, really. It's a slippery slope in uh, Werner Earhart's work. You know, he talks about having positions about things. We've always got positions about things. And they used to have this language about getting off your position about this. But then he addresses the, the position of like, okay, I have no position. That's just another position. And that's the slippery slope. You take the concept of doing nothing as a remedy, and it's not. It's just an approach. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting a remedy to any singular or any of our multiple dilemmas of life. 
It's, it's not a remedy for anything. It's not going to fix anything. But to me, it's what I have found to be the only sane way to go about things. And, and yet, you know, it could also sound like I'm saying, oh, there's, 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 you know, don't do anything. There's no, there's no need for practice. You know, there's no need for spiritual practice. You know, don't meditate. Don't say the name of God. Don't pay attention to the breath. I'm not saying that either. But I am saying don't look to any of those things as remedies either because they're not. They're not designed that way. They're not given that way. So to me, there's no need to practice them as a remedy. And remedies are about fixing. Remedies are about making better. So this brings me back to this thing about practice. Spiritual practice is one aspect, one, one thing. But that's a really difficult thing to do, to engage in spiritual practices without looking to them as a remedy or some form of attainment. Attainment is about being goal-oriented about the whole idea of no top end points to no remedy, no place to end up, no cure, no, <laughs> no ivory tower, no top of the mountain. So what do you do? You just keep practicing. That's it. At least just going out to dinner, having sushi. I did that tonight. That was great. I hadn't been out for sushi in ages. I think an aspect of doing nothing is uh, suspending of judgment about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that could be, I mean, I, I really think that that needs to be said in this discussion this evening, because if we see something about ourselves and then we get all tangled up in our judgment and our blaming ourselves, um, you know, our, those tentacles of self-hatred and all these other things, even if we see that flaw to a certain degree, there is no light that can come in from that because we're blocking it with our own perception of ourselves in terms of judgment. And I think we misunderstand what it means to do nothing because to do nothing is huge mm -hmm. because we always want to do something. And if there's, we always want to fill up a, a vacuum or a hole. So to do nothing might be to, because what we want to fill it up with is beating ourselves up or maybe whatever our secondary gain is about it. So I think when we're talking about seeing the horror of the situation and about seeing those flaws, we see them in a way where there is this inner spaciousness where we let it be what it is. We let it breathe fully in us. If we get it all cramped up with our psychology and our judgment and all that, I don't think there is any flow of light. I think, I think it, it obscures it. Mm -hmm. I can't see that there isn't anything. So I just wanted to, uh, to throw that in. And also to say that, yes, we want some benefit in what we do, um, no matter what it is. And it's like, I think we've got to be okay with that. That's how, that's how it is, especially in the beginning. And maybe it'll be that way for years. It's like, because we're dealing with the, um, that aspect of, of ego that wants to attain something. But I think that looking at ourselves and the kind of self-honesty that you're talking about is a way for us to work with it where we don't go, oh, God, I want something. I shouldn't want anything. I, I think yeah. we, we need to be careful about being too upset about, well, I want this for myself and I want, to, I want a benefit from this, or I want to gain something. I think we need to relax about it. I agree. In fact, I think we need to relax about damn near everything. And again, what does it mean, what does it mean to relax? That's a, that's a good question. I used to have a very different idea of what relax meant. You know? I used to be like, hey, let's just relax, just chill. You know, everything's cool. It's all good. Just relax. If we if we talk about our psychological cramps, all our neurosis, our psychological places where energy gets bound up, to me that's not what interests me so much as relaxing the primal cramp, the 
primal cramp, which informs me on a moment-to-moment basis that I am separate from what it is that sustains me. Of course, it's not true. I know that intellectually, but it informs me nonetheless. And to be able to relax that cramp is very different than relaxing the psychological cramps, the cramps around all our neuroses, around money, food, and sex, Yes. So, got a couple minutes left. In every spiritual tradition, the the great spiritual figures seem to have undergone some process of being like cracked open from a self that we try to maintain into a much wider view of the world, being able to take in like everything. And those people have always seemed to exhibit a lot of freedom and humor. We, like Matthew was saying, like there's some part of us that senses that. And you know, the talks that we do uh, here every other week are meant to uh, encourage us to consider more deeply what we're really doing. Another thing that had occurred to me is that heartbrokenness is a crack along a fault line. You know, that's just something that from time to time just occurs in one's life and really opens us up. 